Father, thank you for the truth of your word. It it speaks to us. It, it convicts us of what is right, what is wrong, of who you are, and it convicts us of who we are. As man is fallen, is sinful, desperately in need of redemption and rescuing. And as we look into man and who man is, I ask God that you would speak to us through your word and that you would speak truth. That anything that is not according to your word, let it just fall as it were to the ground. But let your truth remain. Embed that truth in our heart and show us the implications and applications of this truth today. What is man? And I pray that you would do this in the precious, powerful name of Jesus. Amen. I want to read a passage to you from Psalm 8, verses 4 through 8. It's not in your notes. You can write it down. Matthew 8, 4 through 8. It says this. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and beasts and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. So Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So I want to go back. I want to just take a phrase from the very beginning. What is man? And the psalmist goes on and says that you are mindful of him. But I'm going to ask that question, what is man? Before we answer that you are mindful of him. And we get a lot of responses when we ask the world. Very common question in philosophy classes. What is man? People are very curious. Who are we? Are we simply material? Is there something of a non-material nature to us? I think everyone would have to agree that there is this semblance of non-material about us because we have a mind, we have thoughts, and very few would would simply say that that thoughts are simply uh, chemical reactions in the brain. Um, there, there is some element of non-material, and this, of course, is the mind-brain, mind-brain question that is asked in the philosophy class. Because people want to know: Is there something non-material? If there's something non-material then this goes beyond our ability to analyze and test and put under a microscope and come to firm conclusions because it's something that we can't see and we can't observe. And so there's this element of mystery if we do not hold to the view that's very common in atheism and evolution that man is simply material. Now, when I speak of evolution, I'm I'm separating that from theistic evolution, which at least says, well, as you know, God was aiding the evolutionary process at some point. He breathed life into a man or into, some would say, even a community of hominids. And he placed the image of God within him, etc., etc., Uh, I have serious problems with that theologically. Um, But my question then to us that we need to run with today is what is man? Evolution would say, and I'm mentioning that we are simply material, we're the product of random chance change, and so far, so good, it's it's been progressive and not uh, 
um, the opposite. And we are, though we are discovering that the DNA within the human genome is degrading, <clears throat> and we, many people are born with genetic defects, genes that don't function properly, and there are hundreds and hundreds of these types of genetic defects. Um, many diseases that attack the immune system uh, open us up to diseases that people die with. So even though it's a, a germ or a disease out there, because of the genetic defect of a, 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 um, the immune system not functioning properly, then much like, for example, AIDS, then we, uh, it... it uh, we contract diseases and such, but the human genome is degrading. So, can we really, can the evolutionists even say that man is still progressing? Um, perhaps intellectually, but we're also degrading very quickly. <clears throat> and for them, man is simply material. There is nothing spiritual, there is no concept of the soul, and consequently, you know, they're. They can exclude God from the picture. Um, the pantheists would say, okay, well, man is a spirit being, but this concept of God is in man as well as in all created things, and so we are, we are basically all on the same level. Now, I'm not saying that environmentalism is based on this, but it does cater to this issue, this question of what is man, by, by embracing this concept that we are on the same level as the trees and the grass and insects and animals. Where do you draw the line? If you're an atheist or if you're a pantheist, what really separates man from the animals or man from plants? If you say that killing man is wrong, is it therefore wrong to kill animals? Some would say, yes, that's absolutely correct, because there is no distinction. We're just a higher order, whatever that might mean. Um, so in the, in, in the ethics realm, to kill a man is just as bad as to kill an animal, vice versa. Well, how about plants? What separates us from the plants? Is it wrong to kill a plant? Is it wrong to use a Roundup? Um, what is it that separates us? Well, man thinks more. Man is able to feel. Man's able, you know, plants can't feel. Um, and some environmentalists would say, no, no, yes, they can. Anyways, the idea, though, is we need to find in this, in this concept of ethics and morality, what is it that distinguishes man from the plant kingdom, the animal kingdom? And we, we can't just... Uh, resolve this with a best guess solution uh, turning to philosophy and thinking it through we have to get our answer from the one who actually created us which then states the obvious there is a creator uh, atheists, uh, atheistic evolutionists obviously do not believe this pantheists would say yes there is a creator but that creator is in all of us and therefore we're all equal including the trees and the bears and the deer and now we're back to this problem where do we draw the line but my bible tells me that God created man he, he created man just a little lower than the angels and there is a created order 
man has been placed as ruler over the animals. There is something very unique. As you turn to Genesis 1.27, there's something very unique about how God created man. He didn't just place him uh, on the same level with regard to value, worth, as the animals. He did something very unique with man that he did not do to the animals, including chimpanzees, uh, our supposed ancestors. We have the imprint of God, the image of God, we are made in the likeness of God, and Genesis 1.27 tells us as much. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So men and women, the animals are excluded from this. They are made in the image of God. Um, I think it's very fair to ask, then, what is this concept of the image of God? Can I toss that question out there? If we were to describe the image of God, what would we say it is? I'm going to put image of God up here. Image of God. First of all, what does that phrase mean? Image, icon. Um, but this is Hebrew. Uh, the, the idea would just simply be a reflection, a likeness. That's another Hebrew word that's, that's used here. Fair translations, okay? Um, I, I would venture to say that getting into the Hebrew or in the New, New Testament, the Greek, isn't going to help us out too much. It's, our English is going to be adequate with regard to this. It just so, says here, image, idol. Okay, um, obviously not idol, um, though it is used and translated that way. We obviously are not idols in God's eyes, right? Okay, so we are image, we are reflection. Jesus is the perfect representation or perfect image of God. Colossians two one fifteen says he is the image of God, um, and that would be even more than this concept of the image of God in us. So again, I'm going to throw that question at the What is this image of God that sets us apart from the rest of the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom? Yes? Well, the God sent his only son, Jesus, and father and son have likeness. So image okay. of God is going to look something like Jesus, and we look something like Jesus. Okay. And what sets us apart is that we are able to think and have free will, mm-hmm. And we can plan things. Uh, Okay. That doesn't generally happen. Okay. Let me add something to this because I would, when we talk about free will, what we're really saying is the ability to choose. And animals do choose. Animals, you know, they're going to look at a banana and they're going to look at an orange. And since they've tasted oranges before, you know, apes and they don't like them, they're going to choose the banana. They're familiar with that, so they make a choice. There is this sense of free will. So he, we need to add something to this concept of free will. Juliana? Well, God said that he, um, I, it's a different verse, but when he says that let's make man in our own image, and then it, he breathed his spirit into him. Yes. So I would say that being made in the image of God would be that we have a, a spirit 
Okay. Okay, God is spirit, so we there must be a spirit about us. We're going to develop that idea a little bit later. But just with regard to uh, free will, man is called to account for his free will, his choices, and the animal kingdom is not. Okay? Alright? Um, so... I, I'm going to uh, I'm going to put up here accountability, oops, of free will or choices, um, which would mean then that there is a sense of morality about man that the animal kingdom does not share in morality. What else? Okay, um, this idea of creativity. Yeah. Now, one of the discussions within uh, the realm of science is uh, animals can create, like beavers create their homes, they all create homes, bees build beehives. Are they creative or is this instinct or imprinting that's upon them. Because a bee never builds a, a house with concrete the way we do. All right, So we can build mud houses, we can build concrete houses, but bees, according to their species, build certain types of homes and they are not creative within that realm. So when we talk about creativity, uh, we need to distinguish creativity from imprinting or instinct that's already there. Okay. And so I would venture to say that that instinct is not creative. All right? And that is something that distinguishes man from the animal. Okay? I was going to mention with um, creativity and instinct, creativity is doing something new. An instinct, they just do the same thing. Okay. An animal's not right. going to create something brand new. They're going to do what they were made to do and that's it. There's okay. no going beyond that. Like, All right. And also uh, with emotions. Okay. Emotions? Uh, yes, the Lord... Yeah. Okay, um, I would venture to say that when you do something to an animal, uh, do they get angry? Well, we, we can't ask the animal, what are you feeling right now? I'm feeling really angry at you right now because you took my banana from me or something along these lines. Is that emotion inst an instinctual response? Yeah. Or is it a choice? Can they actually choose not to be angry? No. So again, I'm going to put emotions up here, but there is a fine line that we would have to say, yes, it is possible that there is emotions experienced in the animal kingdom, but humans experience it in a much broader fashion. Okay? So I am going to put emotions up. And I would say that for humans, our emotions are very connected to our spirit. And they okay, and we're actually going to get into that a little bit later. Our emotions are very intertwined, whereas with animals, they don't have a spirit. So, it's, so they do experience sadness or jealousy or anger, but it's, it's very shallow. Whereas with humans, because of our spirit, it's deep waters. Okay. Brian? Um, just an interesting thing I saw a couple of months ago. Animal elephants painting, like making mm -hmm. painting the different scenes and stuff. 
and so like the same elephant made different <laughs> multiple types of paintings, which does kind okay. of. But were they all things that they had seen before? Because don't elephants have? Yeah, like, they didn't because elephants have a bad memory, right? <laughs> Sorry, that was a bad joke. Um, <clears throat> all right, I don't know enough about this. So the way I'm going to treat this concept of creativity emotions is I am going to say this, that it's not that animals can't experience this, but if we were to really fine-tune this, I believe that we would come to the conclusion that this sense of creativity and emotions is distinctively different in humans as it is in the, anim- the rest of the animal kingdom. Um, what else with regard to the image of God might we... And, and again, we're kind of guessing here, but as we, we read through the panorama of scripture verses, I think we can come to some conclusions. All I'm going to say is whatever conclusion we come to with what we put up here, it is not because the Bible has defined the image of God. Okay? Because the Bible doesn't. All right. Aisha. Conscience. Conscience. Describe conscience. What do you mean by conscience? Okay, so I'm, if you don't mind, I'll, I, I can put conscience up here. I'm going to put it under morality, all right? Sarah, did you have a... Um, there is a level of um, being intellectual that animals... I mean, animals can be intelligent in their okay. own way, but... Yes, and, and again, yes, the animal kingdom shares in this... But humans, in a vastly different way, and I'm emphasizing that word vastly, because under this we can put language Mm -hmm. and other things of conceptual, um, pulling facts and doing research and things like this that animals can't do. I've never seen an animal do research. Um, Maybe while scientists are researching animals, they will discover that animals... Anyways. There is something about the intellectual abilities of the mind of the human that sets them apart. It's vastly different. Um, And of course the evolutionists are always going to want to see, well, see, animals are creative. Animals do experience emotions. Animals are intellectual. And play these up so that we can see this connection between the animal kingdom and man. And I'm not saying that there's not a connection. There is a pattern. There is a design that God uses in the animal kingdom that he has also used in man. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking specifically about the image of God in which we reflect God. Okay? Because we looked at at the very end of our lesson that this is where we're all heading. The image of God at the fall is broken. It is not destroyed. Okay? Meaning we, we can still make moral choices. We can still think. So it's not destroyed, but it's been marred. It's been damaged, seriously damaged. And we're going to find that in Christ, it is in the process, emphasizing process, of being restored. So I'm going to put down here character. Okay. Now we might be able to come up with some other things. The Bible says the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. So does God have an arm? We have an arm. Um, is this really what the image of God is? Or is it personification? Is it, is it trying to help us understand the God that we have never seen in a way that we can relate to and talk about the arm of God? Um, these types of things are vague in Scripture, so I, I would rather not go there. I'm not going to say God doesn't have an arm, 
but it would seem that if that it would seem to be that how it's used is to give us a uh, a picture, if you will, that speaks of God's salvation, His rescuing. That is what the arm of the Lord is not too short to save means. So. With all of that, there may be some more that we can put in here under the image of God, but the truth is, Scripture is not really clear as far as what this image is, and so consequently, we're we're left to do something like this, but we have to say, we have to conclude that the animal kingdom does not have the image of God. It does not. The Bible never tells us that if you take the life of an animal, you shall die. But after Noah's flood, God made a covenant with with Noah and his descendants, and he does say this, that if anyone takes the life of a man, because he is made in the image of God, his life should be taken. There is the death penalty for murder. There is not the death penalty for killing or murdering an animal. So God does set us apart from the animal kingdom. I want us to move on here. As we look at Genesis 2, we kind of see this... Uh, a little bit more of this created order unfold for us. And in verse 18 of chapter 2, let me find it. Here we go. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Verse 21. It goes on to say that uh, because no suitable helper was found, verse 21, So the Lord caused man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And then lastly, in verse 23, he says, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Um, There are some jokes along these lines that I am not going to venture, because, uh, yeah. But the idea is that, that Adam apparently has been given the, and I'm going to word it this way, the authority by God to give a name to his wife, woman. All right? Ish is, is um, man, or Adam is man. Um, Ish would, would also be uh, like human and isha for woman but we then are we're we're left with this concept of why does God give Adam this authority to name because here's what we find as we go through scripture God has the authority to change Abram's name he has the authority to change Sarai's name the Nebuchadnezzar has the authority to change um, Belshazzar's name to Daniel um, and, and the other two Shadrach, Meshach, other three Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego their names are changed to Babylonian names um, Jesus has the authority to give Cephas, excuse me to give uh, Simeon or, or Simon a new name Petros he is Peter um, because which means rock so it is very prophetic uh, so it is those in authority who have this ability to, to say, this is your name, okay? And I think this is what is being communicated here. There is an authority that has been given to Adam. She is called to be his, super, his suitable helper, not the one who leads. As we move to 1 Corinthians 11, this is not just simply a cultural concept 
that we no longer that's no longer in vogue or authoritative today but even as Christ is the head of man man is the head of the woman the wife okay and so there is this structure of authority that God has placed among within the context of the family for husband and wife so uh, there again there is this created order that God has established um, we, I, I'm going to give you seven things that I want you to write down. We have discovered that man has been placed at the pinnacle. And by man, I mean male and female. God has placed man at the pinnacle of creation. He has been placed over the animals. He is distinct from them. And he, he rules them. That is his job. That's his mandate. He is also made in the image of God so as to distinguish himself from the rest of God's creation. There is this concept of headship, so authority even within mankind, within the family specific, concerning uh, male and female, husband and wife. There is uh, something that I'm going to get to in, in just a moment concerning the uh, how man is made up. And we're going to look at what's commonly called the dichotomy or dichotomist and trichotomist view of man. Um, if you don't know how to spell that, do your best because I am going to be putting the words up there in just a little bit. The, the fifth thing that I want us to see is that man has a very special purpose. It's not that the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom don't have a purpose. Part of the purpose of the plant kingdom is to give man and animals food. That is why you don't find the creation of the plant kingdom in days four, five, or six, the filling of the earth. They are part of the, the forming of the earth because they are a food supply. So God right there separates the plant kingdom from the animal kingdom. So there is a purpose for the plant kingdom, but it is very dissimilar to the purpose of animals and to the purpose of man. Let me skip ahead. The purpose of man. Unique from all the animal kingdom. Part of the purpose of man is to glorify God in a way that animals cannot. To worship God. Animals cannot worship God. Worship comes from the spirit. Animals do not have a spirit. Consequently, <clears throat> we are unique and set apart in this way. God created us to worship Him. Um, man's purpose is to... Um, to serve God while we are on this earth and it is to impact people in a very positive way. We call this the, uh, the Great Commission. Uh, we, part of what it means to be, to be in the kingdom of God is not just salvation, but it's day-to-day -day living in a way that we extend biblical principles, we extend love to people and we grow as a result of this. We are seeking to, uh, to, to rescue those by the power of the gospel from the kingdom of darkness and see them brought in by God's grace into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of the Son of God. So these are in part the purposes. The animal kingdom does not share in this. This sets us apart. There is something unique about man. There is something that God created man for that he did not create the animal or the plant kingdom. And that is to have this relationship with God, to be able to communicate with him that the animal and plant kingdom cannot do. 
The animal and plant kingdom were created to serve man's ultimate purpose of a relationship with God. Let me say that again. The plant kingdom and the an- the plant kingdom and the animal kingdom are created to serve man's purpose of having a relationship with his creator God. Okay? This is vastly different than the environmentalism, excuse me, by environmentalists. I'm not saying that as a Christian we shouldn't be environmentalists. But I'm talking about, I'll use a very blunt term, the tree hugger. But you understand what I mean here. Mm-hmm. It's when we have created this ethical um, mandate that, that somehow we have got to treat animals and plants as we would treat mankind. And, and God says, absolutely not. Because we need to understand that the plant and animal kingdom are there for us to rule over, i.e. serve our purposes, not our wants and desires. We are not called to, um, to rape the earth. We are called to care for it. Okay, So we don't just go through forests and completely tear them down so that there are no trees left on earth. We are called for it to, to be responsible, and I think it's an awesome idea when we begin to tear down forests in mass that we replace them. Okay, Because if we don't do that, they, are, they serve a purpose, and if they are completely gone, they can no longer serve the purpose for which God gave them. So we need to act with responsibility within this mandate to rule over God's creation. Do you, do you track me at this point? Okay. Um, so... Our ultimate purpose is this relationship with God and to glorify and honor and worship Him in a way that the rest of God's creation cannot. And ultimately, of course, to spend eternity with Him. Number six, only, and I've mentioned this, but only man can sin and therefore be redeemed. Only man can sin. Animals cannot sin. Animals and the plant kingdom and the rest of the universe have been impacted by the curse of, that sin has introduced into the world. That will be redeemed at the end of the age, but they suffer, but they, are, they cannot sin, and they therefore cannot be redeemed. Christ did not die for the lions in Africa. All right? And lastly, we're going to get to this, but God's ultimate goal is that this image of God be restored in Christ. Let me move on. I want us to address this issue then of the uh, trichotomist versus dichotomist view. And I, I'm going to need to explain what I mean. So to do that, um, let's, let's turn to um, in Genesis 2.7 it says, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the earth. This is something that's very material. It's physical. And it says, And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So we can use this concept of soul here, that in the mind of the Hebrew, he views man as both material and immaterial. And I'm going to word it this way that he has given man a body and a soul. Alright? If you were to, to read Genesis 35, 18, it says, 
um, as her soul was departing, for she was dying, um, she named her son, um, Ben. I think it was Benoni, yeah. and uh, Jacob changed his name to Benjamin. But it's as her soul was departing, okay? The, we have this idea that there is something immaterial in man that the Hebrews uh, define as the soul. Uh, Ecclesiastes 12.7 talks about the spirit returns to God. In 1 Kings 17.21, the soul returns returns to God. In John 19.30, it says Jesus gave... This is number 8. Uh, is that is it number 8 in your books, by the way? John 19.30? Okay. Because uh, you have the edited version and I don't. <clears throat> I'd written too many notes in mine and then as I was going through it, edited it. And so, I, yeah. Anyway. John 19.30. Jesus gave up his spirit. <clears throat> The question right now that we need to ask is this. Is the soul the same as the spirit? In answering that question, I am going to lay out for you this, uh, this discussion, debate, concerning the trichotomist view and the dichotomist view. Yes. View. And the dichotomist. <laughs> All right. The trichotomist view basically says that they believe that man is body, soul, and spirit. So I'm going to diagram it this way body, soul, Spirit. If you were to ask someone who embraces the trichotomist view, they will typically say that the soul is the mind, will, and emotions. That is, things about man that you cannot see, but they would say is still not the spirit. Um, they would say that the mind is not the spirit, the will is not the spirit, and the emotions are not the spirit. So that man has a very physical or material aspect to him that we call the body. And then he has two parts to his immaterial self. That would be the soul, as I described here, and the spirit. Let me just say right up front that I don't like this concept of cotonist. Because a dichotomy or a trichotomy are two, die, tri, three, opposing aspects. Last night I talked about uh, God's supposed dichotomy, that his love is opposed to his wrath, and scripture says absolutely not. Actually, since God is love, his wrath is a reflection of his love, even as his mercy is a reflection of his love. We just have this tendency because we don't understand love too well, and God is perfect love, we don't see how wrath and love can, or that how wrath uh, can flow from love, and we see them as polar opposites, and 
so we've, we, we, we can tend to view God as having kind of temper tantrums when he gets angry and that he's not being filled with love at that moment. And eventually, as I mentioned last, last week, the liberal view that love wins out over God's wrath. And God, of course, is he's, he's kind of calmed down. He's not sending people to hell anymore. He's actually released them. If they even go to hell, he's released them from hell. And everybody's in heaven. And I suppose we'll also see Hitler there and Idi Amin and uh, Mao Zedong and, and Stalin and Lenin, etc., etc., etc. And the truth is... The Bible does say that there is an eternal punishment. It's not annihilation. It will be reserved for those who have rejected Christ, don't know and rejected the gospel. And this, this is why we want to share Christ. We want people not only to experience the joy of knowing Christ as Savior on this earth, but for all of eternity. And to be rescued from hell and the, potent, and, and the, the awaiting judgment that lies for everyone who chooses to not follow Christ. Now... Um, so I, I, I don't like this idea of trichotomist. I am going to use this, I, I, I like this term myself, a duplexus view. And again, that is two enfolding views of man, not opposites that cotomist would imply. But So I, I, this is semantics, I realize, I just... I, I do lean in this direction of the dichotomist view, but I just don't like the term. And so I'm going to use this concept of a duplexus. That is, two aspects of man that enfold together. Death separates these two. Death separates the material from the immaterial. It is unnatural. That is not how God created them. So as a result, watch my hands now. This is the material, this is the immaterial. The material goes down into the ground, it stays there, it decays, because it's the, it goes back to the dust of the earth. The curse, okay, this is what I'm showing you with my hands. The separation is a part of the curse, it is not natural. The body then goes into the grave and returns to the dust. The spirit, the, the immaterial part of man, ascends to be with God. We call this the intermediate state. Now, when we get to heaven, hell, and all of these things, we're going to get into this more in detail. At the end of the age, God, at the resurrection, they are brought back together. But there is something about, excuse me, there's something about the material part of man that is now different. In the twinkling of an eye, it is changed. Man is brought together, body and spirit, and the body now becomes imperishable. Okay? Now, we're, we're going to talk about that more in that class uh, because uh, there, there truly is a lot more that... I, I get excited about every time I study it and talk about it. It's, it's awesome. Um, but that's going to step outside of what we want to accomplish today. So this is the typical view of the trichotomous view. It's supported by the passage that says in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, my, I, you know, I, I want you to be sanctified through and through body, soul, and spirit. That is a very Greek-ish way of viewing man. This is how the Greeks viewed man. Um, it is not a Hebrew way of viewing man. If we're going to take scriptures like this, um, then and use them to kind of demarcate the different 
aspects of man, then we should also turn to uh, Mark 12, let me get my bearings here, Mark 12.30, that says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, which would be the body. So are we a trichotomist or are we a quadrotomist? Four. Now, if, we, if we're going to do what we did with 1 Thessalonians 5.23 and come to the conclusion that there are three parts of man, then we should do that with this and our view should change. No, there aren't just three, there are apparently four. I'm going to just simply say this, that as you study through these passages, I believe that a fair conclusion will be the dichotomous view or the duplexus view. Two parts of man, the material and the immaterial. So I want to ask this question, as the word soul is used in the New Testament, how do we view man? Now, I am not going to get into this in depth. I realize my time is limited, but I, I want to be able to throw these scripture passages out to you. Okay, it's, This word soul is used in three ways in the New Testament. It is used, uh, number one, to mean the whole person, in which case I will mean body and spirit. In 1 Peter 3.20, it says that eight souls were saved on the ark. Okay, Does that mean that there were three mind, will, and emotions that were saved, and that the body and the spirit were not saved on the ark? I mean, that, that's rather ludicrous, okay? And I, I think a fair conclusion would be that Peter is using this concept of psuche, or suke. I'm putting the line over the E because it's what they call an eta, and it's A rather than E. Okay? So it's a suke. We get the word psychology, or psych, from this word here. And that is our word for soul. How do we see it used in the New Testament? First Peter 3.20, it's used to talk about the whole person. In Acts 2.41, there were 3,000 souls that were saved that day. Was, was their body not rescued? Was their spirit not rescued? And just their soul? No. He's simply referring to uh, 3,000 people, whole persons, were saved that day. Okay? <clears throat> Excuse me, Acts yes. what? That would be Acts 2.41. I'm sorry, what was the one before that? The Noah one? 1 Peter 3.20. It is also used to be interpreted as life. Um, Matthew, okay, number two is life. You can put that in quotes. Matthew 2.20, um, referring to Jesus, it says they sought the child's suke life or soul um, it's best translated to just mean life Matthew 6.25 it says um, it's in the context of not worrying take no thought uh, for tomorrow okay I am I'm not remembering the exact quote so I'm going to turn to it um, And I said, yeah, six six twenty five, and it says, um, 
Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, about your soul, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. So soul and body. Is not the light, is not life more important than food? And the body more important than clothes? Uh, I do prefer this idea of translating it life rather than this, the whole person because he seems to contrast it with body. Um, but it's more than, it's, it's not exactly spirit either. It is the life. It is that which God breathed into man and made him a living being. So I would hesitate in calling it spirit. However, number three is spirit. And it's used this way very commonly. Um, Matthew, number three again, spirit. Matthew 10, 28 says, Don't fear someone who can destroy your body. Rather, Fear God who can destroy your body and soul in hell. Did, did he, it doesn't destroy your, your spirit. Uh, soul is the immaterial element of man that you cannot see and would constitute his spirit. You are to, we, we would be thrown spirit and body, immaterial and material, into hell. Okay. <clears throat> Why? Because at the end of the age, even the ungodly, even the wicked, even those who have remained outside the kingdom of Christ, when they are judged, it says they will be raised and they will receive their body again. And it will be excuse me, it will be imperishable even as ours will be, but it will not be a body that can glorify God in anymore. It will be cast into hell, body and soul. And it will suffer eternally. Okay? So hell is not going to be populated by a bunch of spirits only. It is body and spirit. Or body and soul. So excuse me. So here's how I'm going to diagram this duplexus view, and I don't mind accommodating this concept of soul to be mind, will, and emotions. You can't see those, but I'm going to diagram it very differently here. So I'm going to do this. I'm going to put body over here. I'm going to put spirit here. And how am I going to deal with the soul? The soul is either equivalent to spirit, or if we're going to use the concept of mind, will, and emotions, and can I say this, that the New Testament and Old Testament, neither of them define soul this way, mind, will, and emotions. That is our present day psychologist's desire to talk about what we can't see about man, and that would be separate somehow from his spirit. So, okay, I, I understand that desire too. If we are going to use these terms of mind, will, and emotions, then here is how I'm going to describe it. Mind, will, and emotions. Can I ask you, can we separate emotions from the body? When we start talking about the hypothalamus, 
Uh, if I'm not mistaken, that is the seat of the emotions. Um, in producing this, it, uh, it, it, it triggers the emotions. <clears throat> emotions, there's a, definitely a chemical element to our emotions, something that's very physical. Can your spirit be angry? Can your spirit love? Can your spirit experience joy? Yes, it can. All of these things. When I am in heaven, just my spirit, and what we use the term disembodied spirit because our body is in the grave and we are with Christ, does that mean that I can't experience love, joy, peace, all of these emotions? Of course I can. So we would have to say that both body and spirit can experience emotions. Can, is there some element within your mind, your brain, that makes choices? I would have, yes, there is. Can your spirit make choices? It's with our heart we believe. That's a choice. So both our body and our spirit makes choices. And of course, the mind, we're, we're going to have to say that the body, there's a physical element to the mind we call the brain, but there is also a spiritual element to the. You know, when I'm in heaven, I'm going to be able to think. I mean, just my spirit. I'm going to be able to think. Okay, so I, I think psychologists today, Christian psychologists today, have, have made an error in defining the soul in this way. And, and there's a reason for them doing this that I, I don't want to... It has to do with this, the concept of demonization and, and a host of other things. And I, I'm just going to say, let's just be really fair with Scripture. I think as we study it, we're going to come to this conclusion that there's the material and the immaterial and that we in our present day today have created this third category of soul. It's a very uh, Hellenistic or Greek. It is not Hebrew in nature. Hebrew in nature is the body and soul. And soul being, um, being interchangeable with spirit. It was Rachel's spirit or soul that ascended to God, returned to God. Okay? Yes? I have a question. Why is Greek and Hebrew? A Greek view and right. a Hebrew Versus view. A Hebrew. Right. They have different um, worldviews, different ways of viewing the world. And the Hebrew view, not always, but usually, is going to be rooted in the Old Testament. The Greek view is just rooted in philosophy. Sometimes it's right, sometimes it's not. So I just don't want us, because First Thessalonians 5.23 talks about body, soul, and spirit, but therefore we are three, that there are three aspects to who we are. Yes, Cole. Uh, so, uh, when we're saved, or we're filled with the Spirit, mm-hmm. uh, does the Spirit of God, is it uh, melt with us, or is it just kind of sitting on top of us? Or it indwells us, okay. so it's inside of us, um, and it, it ministers to our spirit, is he not in our body? Why? Again, this is why I'm choosing the term duplexus. Because <clears throat> I don't want to draw this fine line between body and spirit, though they can be separated. It's unnatural. So I want to be careful in saying that God's spirit does not inhabit our body. That somehow it only inhabits our spirit or cohabitates with our spirit. I want to avoid that. Okay, because scripture just scripture does not bring about this distinction, and and, and I don't think it, it it would want to because it's not natural to separate body and spirit. Though the body 
is not the spirit. Okay? So, uh, I am saying this as a good politician to avoid answering your question, Cole. <laughs> because I don't believe that the, that the Bible um, specifically tells us. Okay? We are indwelt by the Spirit of God. It will affect us emotionally. There are times in which... Uh, me as a somewhat unemotional pastor will weep during worship because it's if the, the presence of the Spirit of God ministering to me affects me emotionally. It affects me physically, my body. Okay, and so I, I just want to be real careful in how we start splicing and dicing this um, when we get to that. But that, that's a fair enough question. Okay, any other questions? Okay, well, um, it's not really a question, but I was just thinking. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit indwells our spirit once we become born again. And that probably impacts our soul. I was just... Um, well, again, I, I want to avoid saying that He indwells our spirit. He indwells us. He indwells us as a being. Okay? And so I don't want to, I don't want to say that He just indwells our spirit. Okay? God indwelling our spirit. If, if anything, maybe he cohabitates with our spirit. Okay. And again, Scripture does not get into this. And, and I'm going to venture to say be, because it's not needed. God is in us, and that's sufficient for us to know. Okay. You know, where is easy in my heart? The Bible never actually says that God is in our heart. Okay. That, that's something we learned in Sunday school. We can invite Jesus into our heart. So, well, or, again, it's because Jesus, <clears throat> he's knocking at the door, and we get this impression from Revelation 3, I think it's 20, uh, that he, he knocks on the door, and he is asking to come in and eat with us. And, and Anyway, I don't want to pursue that any further, because Scripture, I don't believe, does. So let, let's just leave it at that, that the Spirit of God indwells us, body, spirit, mind, will, emotions, He inhabits us, and to walk in the Spirit means that all of this is brought under the control of God's Spirit. Not just our spirit, but all of our entirety. To walk in the Spirit means we are submitted to His Spirit. Okay? You follow me? All right. Um... Let me just make sure that I have covered everything I need to. All right, let, let's look at these last several verses here. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, let's look at Colossians 3.10. I said in the beginning that at the fall, man, when he fell that the result of sin which brought about the curse marred or damaged the image of God within man. <clears throat> this will then affect his relationship with a future spouse or her future spouse. And Genesis 3 um, I'm sorry, 3... 16 um, uh, tells us as much when it says that speaking to the woman your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you 
I don't have time to develop that, but but that is part of the curse. It's not this idea for desire me is used in the very next verse as sin would desire to have Cain. I think we need to understand that the 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 use of this term desire, which is used only three times, by the way, in the Old Testament, the other is in a romantic way in Song of Solomon. I don't believe that this word used uh, 600-600 years later meant that in Genesis 3. It's not that you will have romantic desires for your husband, it's that you will desire to control your husband. Your desires will be for your husband. But seeing that that will offend him, he will, contr- he will rule over you with an iron fist. And so that man, in seeking to... The, the woman will find it difficult to submit and the man will find it difficult to lead. Okay? This is part of the curse. For that reason, Paul addresses this in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5 because he said... and, and uh, 6, 5 and 6, in which he says, Husbands... Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Wives, submit to your husbands and obey them. He is speaking to this curse that we find in Genesis 3. So the curse has impacted all of who we are as humans, even to the point where it has... Well, I don't have it diagrammed up here, but the image of God that I drew up on the board... Um, at the beginning of class and how we defined it and there would probably be more to that. Most specifically, this image of God with regard to our character. We get to share in the character of God in which Peter calls the divine nature. That doesn't mean the uh, share in his divinity or his deity. He's not talking about that. His divine nature refers to his character. We get to share in this idea of love and joy and peace and humility and perseverance and faith and um, meekness. Um, list out all the fruits of the Spirit. These, This is the divine nature. This is what we get to share with God. That aspect of the image of God has been broken. And as I say, it has crept into our relationships. We see that in Genesis 3. Here then, in Colossians 3, Paul says that we have put on the new new man, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. Renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. That is a little bit hard to wrap our minds around how that's worded. Um, But welcome to Paul's writing. This is... The image of God, the image of its creator, this is understanding this and, and who we are as humans. This is being renewed. This aspect of the image of God is being renewed in our knowledge of the image of the creator, in, in our relationship with God, and how we reflect him as a result in our love, in our peace, in our humility and faithfulness and and you name it. So this is in process of being restored. We see this also in Colossians 4. Um, I don't have the verse written down. Um, uh, 
Colossians 4 around um, 22, uh, 24, in that area in which he speaks of this, uh, this renewal. And s- Colossians, uh, I'm sorry? The one I just gave you was Ephesians 4. Yeah. Colossians 3.10 is what it's, it says specifically renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. So that is what the new man is. The new man that we have been given is this renewed image of God that is in process. It is being renewed. There is no one on earth whose image of God imprint on them is completely renewed. Otherwise, they would be perfect. And there is no one who is. Um, Though there is a theology of perfectionism I'm not going to get into today, but can I truly tell you that no one has arrived at that point, and we will not until heaven, but it is our goal. This is what we've been called. Be perfect even as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Okay? So that is our goal. Our goal is to be completely renewed in the image of our Creator, to truly reflect, as Adam did, this image of God in every facet. Okay? Um, We are told to... uh, in Romans 8.29, that we have been predestined to be conformed to the uh, likeness of Christ. The purpose, we haven't gotten into predestination, but its purpose is this right here that I'm talking about, that we be conformed. We become more and more like Jesus himself in all of his character. Not his essence. His essence is, is both man and God. We cannot share in that. Regardless of what our Mormon friends share, it is completely unbiblical that we would share in his deity. This was Satan's desire, and we need to really be careful. This cannot, this should not be our desire. To be God places ourselves equal with God, and that will never be. Okay? That is what sets Satan up for his fall. And I'm just going to suggest this is the this is one of the deep inbred errors of Mormonism. Okay, it is aligning themselves with the sin of Satan, and if anything, to be renewed in the knowledge of the image of our Creator means to distance ourselves from that idea, that concept, that desire as much as we can. Okay, and then. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to leave it at that. Did you have questions? Yes, Maria. Just one more thing. When we talked about giving our hearts to Jesus, I just thought about that verse where it says, the heart is deceitful and um, desperately wicked. Who can know it? Um, that verse is our hearts are desperately um, wicked, but giving our hearts to Jesus would probably be like giving him everything. You know, just giving our evil hearts to him and he transforming it and making it beautiful. So okay. when we say giving our hearts to Jesus, I don't think there's any, I, I personally don't think, in my opinion, there's anything wrong with it because the heart is the most evil part, probably. It's desperately wicked. And right. to Jesus, he transforms it, he changes it. Sanctification, like you said, to right. make made perfect. Right. And, and, and the only reason why I caution the use of that is that it's not a biblical phrase, oh, but it, would, it, it, it can be seen as a biblical concept in the way you explain it. We would just have to understand what are we what are we really talking about here. So just just caution with regard to that. Um, so he, here then, thank you by the way. Any other questions? Okay. So I, I, I want to conclude with this, 
And look at the time. How about that? Awesome. Um, we are wrapping it up on time. God has uniquely set man apart from the rest of his creation, and he did so because it is only man that has this unique destiny, and we can see that destiny in the very way he designed man. Okay? Design always implies destiny or purpose. Okay? So how something is created or manufactured by the way it's designed, it, you can see it has a purpose. All right, A watch, by looking at it and how it's manufactured, should not be used as a paperweight. Okay? You can use it that way if it doesn't work anymore, but that's not its purpose. Its purpose is to be able to tell us the time. So man has a unique destiny because he has unique design. It is specific to his relationship with God and how that works out in his now his relationship with the rest of creation. All of creation has um, in the plant kingdom and animal kingdom is here to serve us now in our relationship with Christ. And as we looked at the purpose of angels, one of their purposes is to serve the heirs of salvation. So God, even though we have been made a little lower than the angels, um, God has commissioned them to serve us as heirs. He has not commissioned angels to serve the animal kingdom or the plant kingdom. So we have a purpose, and that purpose is to serve Christ and we are desperately, because the heart is desperately wicked, by the way, we're going to be looking at that next week. But because of our fallen nature, we desperately need to be made new, to be redeemed, and for, our, for our, the image of God to be renewed so that we can truly serve Christ. And so if this is our goal, then everything... That about us, our careers, our family, our aspirations, everything about us, about you, must fall under this ultimate goal of this relationship with Christ and what he has called us to in exercising dominion over his creation. And that will also include, by the way, our relationship with one another. Okay, This is our ultimate well, I don't want to say ultimate purpose. Our ultimate purpose is to spend eternity with Him. But here on earth, our ultimate purpose is this. Okay? Awesome, awesome purpose. And a unique place that God has put us. This is vastly different than what other religions of the world and other philosophies of the world teach. And I'm going to just close with this, that if, that if we really want to know the truth about these things, we must always, always turn to the Word of God. We can never rely on man's philosophy or science or anything outside of the Word of God. Okay, let's close in prayer. Father, I want to thank you for the truth of your Word. And that truth really recognizes that, that we as man, in, in this unique place that we have in your creation... We really blew it. We have fallen from that glory of God. We have missed the mark. And we definitely, we absolutely need rescuing. And to have this image that you have imparted to us in reflecting you 
restored. Would you do that, God? Where we're failing in love and where we're failing in faithfulness or humility, God, would you grant us these things and refine us? This is what life is about so that we can ultimately serve you, our Creator, and let your Spirit serve through us to the rest of mankind. So God, would you help us as we walk with you? Please, God, this is our destiny. In Jesus' name, amen.